Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're doing well and staying safe. I have two very interesting guests for you today. Later on in the show, we're going to meet veteran New Yorker staff writer Tony Hiss on Zoom from his home in New York City's East Village. His new book, Rescuing the Planet, is an urgent call to protect 50% of the Earth's land by 2050, thereby saving millions of its species. It's also a candid assessment of the health of our planet and our role in conserving it. We'll meet Tony later in the show. He's fascinating. You do not want to miss that one. First, though, is Griffin Poetry Prize winner Jordan Abel. He joins me to talk about his intriguing new book, Nishka. It's a groundbreaking, deeply personal, and devastating autobiographical meditation that attempts to address the complicated legacies of Canada's residential school system and contemporary Indigenous existence. Drawing on autobiography and a series of interconnected documents, including pieces of memoir, transcriptions of talks, and photography, Nishka is a book about confronting difficult truths, and it is about how both Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples engage with a history of colonial violence that is quite often rendered invisible. Let's meet Jordan Abel on Zoom from his Alberta home. Congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. It, it is a really beautiful piece. I don't know how to describe it. It's a it's an interdisciplinary piece of work, I think, uh, between the imagery, between the poetry. There's prose in here. There's like interviews in here. There's all sorts of of different uh, mediums uh, that are all kind of banged together here to form one whole. Tell me uh, about approaching your work in that way, because I don't know is. Is word collage a thing? Is that what you do? <laughs> uh, I, I think that's totally one way to one way to look at it. I I, I tend to think of this uh, this work as 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 being multi genre work. Mm. So it's it's work that is at the intersection, as you say, you know, of of like academic talks and transcripts, uh, photography, concrete poetry, creative nonfiction, and uh, maybe maybe there's something else in there too, <laughs> uh, but you know it's it's a it's a work that's at the like it, it's a work that exists partly within all of those different genres, mm -hmm. uh, and that's and that's the space that I, I tend to work in as as a writer. Um, previous to this book, all of my writing had been published under the banner of poetry, um, and my first book, for example, is a book called The Place of Scraps, and that book was at the intersection between uh, creative nonfiction, poetry, uh, historical fiction, and photography, um, so it was it was you know a sim similar but different mix uh, of genres and and poetry was was totally okay with that. Uh, I'm I'm so incredibly pleased that McClellan and Stewart was willing to to work with me on this project and to and to publish uh, publish a work uh, as and publish the work as creative nonfiction, even though you know it's. As you say, all of these, all of these other genres working together. And tell me a little bit about why you approach your work uh, in this way. Does your are you, do you feel that your your brain is just wired a little differently, and this is uh, the the fullest expression of uh, what your uh, the the ideas that you're trying to get across? Uh, 
I, I think that's probably part of it. <laughs> you know, uh, the the way I, I uh, the way I've talked about it before is that you know I I I think I write problem based writing mm. where the problem in this case is you know both my life and intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. um, and I, I I think it's so incredibly hard to describe what intergenerational trauma looks like that part of the multi-genre approach to Nishka actually comes about uh, in, in order to try to address the full complexity of what intergenerational trauma looks like um, for me specifically and and to talk also and, and to talk uh, in in a way that is, nuanced and complicated and you know really addresses you know the 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 fullness of that subject matter well you have often spoken about indigenous stories as being a form of testimony uh and and i see that in nishka is that what you sat down to do not not initially as that's really that's really interesting that's really interesting question i I, I think initially I, I sat down uh, to to not even write a book. You know, I, I sat I, 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 when I began this project, um, I was working on a dissertation uh, for my for my PhD, and I was you know putting different pieces together and you know trying to trying to figure out you know how to how to talk about this incredibly complicated subject matter. And it wasn't until uh, I ended up um, talking, like I ended up uh, thinking about um, a few a few key writings from other people, um, one of them by Michelle Kupel, uh, that, you know, talked about Indigenous writing as a form of testimony. And that, and that was a moment that really clicked for me. And I started to think about uh, Nishka and this book that I was writing, you know, as, as also a form of testimony, because it spoke to the the legacies of violence that extended outwards from the Kokolitsa residential school. And it spoke to uh, the traumas that my grandparents experienced there. And, and also and it, it spoke to how those traumas uh, seeped into my father's generation and also into my generation. And also, you know, how those, how those violences ended up transforming and shifting and reshaping themselves. You're listening to my interview with Jordan Abel, author of Nishka, available now wherever fine books are sold. Intergenerational trauma is, as you say, complicated. It is uh, uh, echoes of the past that that reverberate still today. Um, this may be a terribly naive question, but but how do you feel them today? How do you perceive them today in your life? You know, I think it's, I, I think that's the, one of the central questions of the book is that it, it, I really try to, try to think, uh, think deeply about how those violences appear in my life today. Um, and, and one of the, one of the main ways that I, that I um, make an argument for in Nishka is that 
I, I grew up uh, disconnected from my traditional territory. Uh, and that, that's a, it's a big part of the, of, of the book, you know, where I talk about you know, like all of the specifics of, you know, how and why I came to be dispossessed from Niska territory. And, and that like not growing up in Kinkolith, not growing up with the indigenous side of my family is, is a form of violence, you know. It's uh, it's it, it creates a creates a hole in you, you know, in some ways, you know, where you feel, you know, like there's something something missing, something that cannot be um, cannot be covered over, or you know, cannot be filled in, and and, and that's absolutely one of the ways that you know I I think. I, I think of as as being like a concrete example of how intergenerational violence has has impacted me. And you know, when I said earlier, you know, about you know my grandparents' experiences in residential schools, like you know, there are specific traumas that that happen there and and you know and, and as a whole as well. Um, and you know, I think tracking the uh, the wake of that violence, you know, is is part of part of the task of of thinking through what intergenerational trauma means. Difficult to write about, I would imagine, not only because of the personal impact it has had on your life, but also it feels to me as though the idea of intergenerational trauma is both tangible and intangible, sort of at the same time. I guess the, to to put it kind of simply, the the tangible part of it is that uh, in the residential schools and elsewhere, like acts of violence, acts of of actual physical violence uh, happen. The intangible part, I think, is is more the void that you feel when you've been separated from your culture and those formative experiences that you can't get back you can reconnect with culture but you can't get the the formative experiences when you're a child and you're an open book and you're learning and 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 it and it seeps into you and never leaves that's i guess the intangible part is that too simplistic a, a view no i th i think that's i i think that's really perceptive actually i i i, th I think there are a, a lot of intertwining, overlapping outcome of those original violences, um, but you know, as as you say, you know, I think there are there like there there are certain things that you can never get back that you can you know never quite recover from, and you know, I think um, indigenous language uh, and indigenous culture, you know, I, I think you know not being a presence in my life for such a long time, you know, I think that that, you know, leaves a a similar but but different hole <laughs> than, you know, the absence of family. Um, and at, at the at the very end end of the book, I quote my friend Natalie Knights, who has this really great idea of of being doubly dispossessed, you know, both of indigenous lands and of indigenous language and culture and that those are um those are those are different things but they occupy sometimes you know similar places what was the courage that you were looking for 
when you were thinking of this book and then actually sitting down and creating it? It potentially is is a, a couple of different things. Uh, so, you know, it as as a writer, um, you know, every everything that I that I work on you know, has, has, has different levels of excitement and enthusiasm. Sometimes, you know, you find a project that uh, you're super stoked about and you just want to spend like all your time on it. And then other times uh, you, like, you write a project like Nishka, like this book and, you know, each page and each, each time you sit down to, to write it, you know, is this really, incredibly painful, um, difficult experience. And also, um, you know, sometimes, you know, like in particular with this project, you know, there were certain moments where, you know, it was really, it was really difficult to even put things into words to, to properly articulate uh, what it is that I wanted to say and, and how I wanted to say it. Um, so whatever, whatever that courage you know, was, you know, I think it was, it was, you know, partly in the, in the act of actually sitting down and writing it and trying to be as open and honest and as transparent as I could be, um, you know, as, as, as a writer, we have all these tools to, to, to not do that, <laughs> you know, to find, to find ways, you know, to, to, to not actually say the thing that you're trying to say or to, you know, smooth it over in some way. And I was really determined to, to not do that. Um, and then, you know, I guess the, I guess the other piece here is that, is, is that, you know, once I had all of that work together, um, you know, finding finding a way to 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 share it and you know and and anticipating people reading it you know is also is also a much more difficult process for this book than it was for any of my other works and why do you think that is because in a lot of ways nishka is about what it means to be indigenous what it's like to be indigenous and this book will be read by you know, it's going out in the world. It's going to be read by a, a lot of different kinds of people. Do you think that that was part of the not reticence, but the, the 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 reason it took so long? Because you were thinking that you were putting down on a page uh, a, a concept and an idea that's um, so big, <laughs> and and no no one. Uh, person is a monolith. No one uh, is a mono. So when you're writing something like this, you are you are putting into words something very sensitive, very uh, heartfelt, which is going to be read by a lot of different people. And maybe that's where the fear comes from. Yeah, I I, th I think uh, I think that's that's definitely been true as we've as I've moved closer and closer to this day, uh, which is the you know the the official day that Nishka goes out into the world, um, you know, I, I think in, initially, you know, that wasn't that wasn't the way I, I was feeling about it. Uh, in, in in part because you know all of all of my other books ha uh, have been poetry, and this is my mm -hmm. first book of creative nonfiction, and you know, for for me the the, the main difference, you know, is that uh, you know poetry has a more in, like intimate readership and creative nonfiction might have a bit of a longer reach. Mm. And, you know, so when I was publishing 
poetry, you know, I uh, feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to have, you know, some of some of the best readers out there, you know, uh, readers that, you know, really are uh, wonderful and, you know, sensitive and, and thoughtful. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, as the as 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 time moves forward and as we as we get to this moment uh where, where nishka officially launches you know i there's this lingering question in my mind of you know how uh how other readers are, are going to going to approach this book and i and i do hope they uh, approach it you know with kindness and generosity um and i and i also hope that uh they approach it with um you know, care for themselves. You know, as I, as, as I, as I mentioned in the book, like right at the outset. You know, I think this is a book uh, that has really difficult subject matter, and you know, one that, um, you know, it's it's okay to to return to at some later date mm -hmm. if now is not the right time. And I and I and I hope readers, you know, th think about that when they are arrive at those initial pages and decide for themselves, you know, whether or not this is uh, a work they want to engage with right at this particular moment. You're listening to my interview with Jordan Abel. Find his book Nishka wherever you buy fine books. On a more practical note, the pandemic delayed the release of this book. And if I'm remembering correctly, and I might not be, but I think we booked this interview about a year ago, originally, uh, when the book was supposed to come out the first time, and then that was canceled because we didn't know how long things were going to go on. Uh, and now here we are sitting here today, you know, 365 <laughs> days later doing the interview. Has that been a difficult uh, time for you when you know that you've got this work of art that you've made, this, this book that you've written, and it's sitting there, uh, almost released, probably printed sitting in a warehouse somewhere, uh, waiting for uh, waiting for it to come out. Oh my God, it was the longest year of my life for <laughs> so many reasons. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think like like waiting, you know, that extra year for the for the book to come out and knowing for sure that it was that that copies were just sitting in a warehouse somewhere, <laughs> you know, was was very trying at certain moments. Um, I I think especially you know those moments where other people's books are coming out and you know you see you see them like being celebrated and having success and and you know and, and my book was you know just on on hiatus yeah, sitting on a, <laughs> on a skid somewhere in a box yes. yeah <laughs> you know but it was, it, was a, it was a long year for other reasons too you know I, I i had a baby this year and she is so wonderful uh and takes up all my time so you know th thankfully you know i think that that experience uh which is an ongoing experience you know really um you know, took my mind off of it. You mentioned that you have uh, a baby now, 10 months old baby. Congratulations. Thank you. Her life will be different, perhaps, than yours, as there's been a, a reckoning uh, of late. Uh, Nishka is a record of that. What What do you think Nishka will be to her? Is it is it a, a portrait of a time that hopefully by the time she's old enough to read it will be passed? I, I've definitely thought about this, uh, you know, as I, 
not so much as I was writing the book, but you know, since she arrived in the world, and you know, I I, I think I haven't come to any any firm conclusion. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, my 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 hope for her and you know for this book, um, you know, is that you know it becomes it becomes a record of of things that happened in the past, and it be and it you know is a it, it stands in for work that she doesn't have to do herself. Like I'm, like, I, like I've described this book before as being a lifelong project for me. So it took uh, th- 30, 36 yeah. years to write this in book making, in some yeah. ways, <laughs> you know, and, and so many of the questions that I ask in this book and that I attempt to answer, you know, have been questions I've been asking my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really hope for, for Phoenix that, you know, th- those, those aren't the same questions she's asking her whole life. Um, that, you know, some of this work that I've done here, uh, you know, moves her forward a little bit, you know, and that she she isn't in the same place that I was, you know, at, at all of those different stages. That was Jordan Abel talking about his book, Nishka. Find it wherever you buy fine books. My guest in this segment is veteran New Yorker staff writer Tony Hiss. His new book is called Rescuing the Planet. In it, he invites us to understand the scope and gravity of the problems that we face as a planet and as a people. But he also makes the case for why protecting half the land in the world is the way to fix these problems. He highlights the important work of many groups already involved in this fight, and he introduces us to the engineers, geologists, biologists, botanists, oceanographers, and ecologists, and other half-earthers like himself who are allied in their dedication to the unifying essential cause of saving our own planet from ourselves. Here's Tony Hiss via Zoom from, well, one of my favorite places, the East Village in New York City. I want to sort of go back a little bit. Uh, among birders, there's a, a saying called the spark bird. That's the, the bird that makes you fall in love with birding and nature. I wonder what the spark was for you that made you not only fall in love with nature, but uh, grow a concern about where nature was headed and what we can do to facilitate the survival of our natural surroundings? Well, this book began more with a sense of urgency, I think. It was just the plight of the animals began to get to me. And reading that a million species of plants and animals are at risk of imminent extinction mm-hmm. uh, just seemed appalling. and. You know, as a reporter, I think the only thing I ever learned was that if an idea came into my head, it was bound to have come into the heads of a hundred or a thousand of people more intelligent than I am. And all I had to do was find them. And then there was a story. So I started looking around and somehow I was able to make the acquaintance of Edward O. Wilson, a Harvard biologist who is probably the world's great champion of biodiversity. and, and we got to be friends, actually. And he started introducing me to people he knew who were doing something about this. Um, and this was 10 years ago. And he, he was always saying, we've got to think bigger at a larger scale in order to do something useful. But he was actually at that point sort of throwing out 
just almost uh, to be provocative, the idea of protecting half of the land in the in the uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. And but he sort of thought of it as what in the business circles is sometimes called a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious call, something you announce <laughs> just to get people's attention. Right. You don't expect necessarily it's going to get anywhere, although occasionally it does galvanize people the way President Kennedy said, let's put a person on the moon in a decade, and we did. Mm -hmm. But since then, uh, the subject has sort of been catching up with us. And, and now your government has announced the goal of protecting 30% of Canada by 2030, 25 by 25, 30 by 30. The Biden administration has adopted this conservation goal of 30 by 30 for the US. Suddenly it's something people are, instead of thinking of as preposterous, just sort of something, oh, oh that, yes, sure. And what made this book a joy to report was finding people all over the continent who are working hard on this and, and getting somewhere. And it makes you think we actually have a chance to stave off this uh, this mass extinctions crisis. You're listening to my interview with Tony Hiss, author of Rescuing the Planet, available wherever you buy fine books. Well, let's do a bit of a dive here and, and explain some things to people here. We all know what flat earthers were. That's different than what you're writing about. You're writing about half earthers here. So explain <laughs> to me what being a half earther means. Well, it means thinking about the needs of the other species in a way that doesn't restrict the needs of our species mm -hmm. and coexisting with the, all of them. And it turns out there's a lot of science now that says that most plants and animals need at least half of their original habitat to be maintained in order to thrive. It, it varies a bit. There's some can make do with say 30%, others are more sensitive and need up to 70%, but split the difference, 50 seems to be mm -hmm. reasonable assumption by scientists. At the same time, people like Edward O. Wilson have come up with this kind of predictive biological math saying that if we stay at 15%, which is where we seem to be globally now, um, that's only going to guarantee the long-term survival of maybe a quarter of all the species. And that that's just just an unbelievably horrifying statistic to me. Whereas if we can bump that up to 50%, um, then we have a good chance of saving at least 85 to 90% of everything. Not everything, but close to everything. And what does that mean? Well, obviously some places uh, like New York City is not going to get to 50%, um, but we can get more than we've got. Uh, the city has got a lot of open spaces, some of which are still in rather natural shape and being protected by a natural areas conservancy. On the other hand, in places like the Canadian boreal forest, which is 85% intact and probably the largest uh, wildness left and most intact wildness left on the whole planet, more so even than the Amazon rainforest or the Russian taiga, uh, we can go for pretty much all of what's still there. And then this is where you guys, the Canadians, are leading the pack on this continent uh, because suddenly there's this move to involve the indigenous populations, the people who've been there for 10,000 years and know the land intimately uh, better than anybody as 
the rangers of a whole new set of parks that the Canadian government can set up. Uh, they can be the indigenous guardians of these indigenous protective and conserved areas. Um, mucklucks on the ground, as they say. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is an astonishing new development and one that's suddenly going full speed and getting um, real support from the Canadian federal government. Uh, and also it looks like real support globally from big philanthropic community willing to invest money in this. And, and that's sort of changing the balance of the way people think. If, as many Canadians have always believed, the riches of Canada were under the ground and or in terms of the forest being felled, now we can think of the riches being on the ground and in the ground <laughs> uh, because this is what's keeping the biosphere going, keeping all these species alive. Um, so uh, a lot of things are sort of beginning to take a different turn in people's minds. You know, the, the astronauts, those lucky enough to get beyond the surface of the earth, almost to a person have reported that when they look back at earth, it changes the rest of their lives because they see both the specialness, but also the preciousness and the vulnerability of this glowing blue pearl in space. And now I think that's, and they call it the overview effect. I think it's beginning to seep into us down here, people who aren't gonna get up there as the sort of the interview effect. On the one hand, the world is astonishing in its breadth. But on the other hand, it's got this third dimension, its height or its lack of height. The fact that almost all life exists within this band between the bottom of the oceans up to the top of Everest. And that's only a distance of 12 and a half miles vertically. And if it were spread out horizontally on the ground, it's the kind of thing you could drive across in 20 minutes on a decent road on drive from one end of life to the other end of life in 20 minutes. Well, that suddenly makes it seem so precarious. Uh, and that's the situation of every species, ours and everything else. So I, I think that's jogging our thinking and that, and that kind of urgency uh, is changing the way people approach these things and helping us to think at these bigger scales, which in the past we haven't done. I mean, Yellowstone National Park is the oldest national park. I know Banff is almost as old, but Yellowstone does have precedence back in 1870. And we thought this is the way we protect things, uh, setting up national parks. But then it became apparent that the animals weren't listening to the boundaries and they were wandering in and out. And, and, um, and also if development began to creep around the edges of the park, if they wanted out, they couldn't, couldn't get back in. So we were thinking at the wrong scale. And what do you think it is that has made us think, uh, or at least look towards the right scale? Recently, I interviewed a man named Johan Rockström in Sweden, uh, who works with Sir David Attenborough, uh, and he created the nine planetary boundaries that we have to keep in mind for the survival of our planet. And he's a very serious guy, and he, he, we walked through all of this. But at the end of it, he had hope. You know, we often hear there's 10 years left that we really, that we have left to address a lot of these issues that we have. After that, it's irreversible. But there seems to be a push now towards thinking in a larger, big picture way about what happens around the world and how we're all interconnected. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I, I think he's absolutely right. And my several things to say. My book is a book of hope just because as I traveled around the continent, I kept running into people who were doing wonderful things mm -hmm. uh, and getting somewhere. And, um, and also realizing that this kind of thinking isn't um, as of the moment as we might think. It really extends back a hundred years or more. Uh, one of the first people who started thinking big was a craggy New England forester named Benton Mackay, who in 1900, when he graduated from college, climbed up a mountain in Vermont, shinned up to the top of the tallest tree. And that's where this vision overcame him, what he called a planetary feeling, that there was a single landscape extending from Maine all the way south to Georgia, and that someday maybe a footpath could connect these peaks. And that became the Appalachian Trail, built by tens of thousands of volunteers in their spare time. Um, so he began thinking big. Then Canadian activist and lawyer Harvey Locke had the same kind of experience in the Rockies in the 1990s, thinking of the landscape between north of Yellowstone National Park all the way up to the top of the Yukon as a single place. And that became the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, which is bringing together all kinds of people who never thought they had much in common with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, government agencies, ranchers, conservationists, uh, and they've managed to protect something like 20% of that landscape. But there was sort of a co-founder of the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative, and that was a wolf named Pluey. Because in the 1990s, in a blinding rainstorm near Banff, biologists captured this wolf named her Pluey because of the rain, put a collar on her, and that was just at the point where we could begin to pick up signals that animal collars were giving off that could be picked up by satellites. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, we know wolves wander around a bit. They should probably move 50, 60 miles in our lifetime. But then the signal went dead seemingly and they thought, oh, we lost her. Back to the drawing boards. Several months later, people in NASA called up and said, we've got your wolf on our tracking system here. We're down in Idaho. Well, it turned out Pluey had left Banff, had gone into the US, and over the next 18 months, once they were tracking her again, covered a distance 10 times the size of Yellowstone National Park through three US states and two Canadian provinces. Um, so now the animals are beginning to, we'll be able to listen to the animals and they can tell us where they are and what they need. And this is all coming to fruition. Uh, a brilliant German uh, ornithologist, Martin Vikelsky, who studied here in the States, uh, has put together something called Icarus, which is going to, he's got up on the International Space Station. Now there are antenna that will, when it gets geared up, be able to pick up the signals from 300,000 animals simultaneously all over the world. So the animals are our partners in this effort to protect the species. You're listening to my interview with Tony Hiss, author of Rescuing the Planet, available wherever you buy fine books. In one section of the book, you talk about uh, an environmental consultant from Maine. And when he is speaking to people who are interested in uh, their immediate surroundings, their neighborhoods or their, their towns or cities, he says, well, who is the Thoreau of your community? Uh, who is your Andrew Wyatt? Why are those questions significant? And what do you think that they are meant to trigger in the person who's being asked the question? 
Oh, that's a guy named Ula Amundsen, a wonderful fellow. And I think he's trying to say, if you begin to feel that there's something tugging at you, wherever you are, um, somebody else has been thinking about that and has tried to distill what it is about this place that is so special. Um, and, and that's always a, a big help to sort of get in touch and tune with someone who's been thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But it also means that anyone who begins to feel this tug, that this spark bird kind of tug, because it doesn't have to be a bird. It could be a view, it could be wildflowers, it could be swinging on the top of a tree like old Benton Mackay did. <laughs> um, uh, whatever your interests are, whether it's hiking or birds or cons conserving land, all you have to do is Google uh, and there are groups in your area who are already working on this. And that means they are working on rescuing the planet, whether or not they think of themselves in highfalutin terms like that. Uh, but every, every place is an ecosystem. And that, that was something I was able to discover in my own neighborhood here in New York when a wonderful urban naturalist, Tymon McPherson, took me out for a rock. And, and first thing he said was, don't look around, look down. And there were tiny plants growing in the cracks of the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, there's always something going on here. And, and all we need to do is, is work from there. We can have greener streets, we can have greener walls because we now know how to plant the walls of buildings. We can have green roofs and the city council in New York actually has a new local law requiring that new buildings will have to have green roofs. And one of the candidates for mayor now down here is saying every school in the city should have a green roof. So there's so much that can happen and that is happening already that that's what made my book full of optimism. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Tony Hiss, author of Rescuing the Planet. You can find his book wherever you buy fine books. Now, last week, if you missed my interview with Moby, I just wanted to replay just a, a quick little clip. As you may or may not know, I'm the world's biggest David Bowie fan. Well, maybe next to Moby, who actually got to be friends with him. So I had to ask, what was it like being friends with your hero? This is what Moby had to say. You have to shut down the normal part of your brain, <laughs> you know, because um and referencing an old friend of mine who's also Canadian, Mike Myers in Wayne's World, yep. when he and Garth meet Alice Cooper in Wayne's World, right. for about 20 seconds, they're holding it together. And then they fall on the ground and just say, we're not worthy. Every second I spent with David Bowie, I wanted to throw myself on the ground and just say, like, I'm not worthy. I love that story. That was Moby. If you missed the interview, you can find it at iHeartRadio. Google it. It comes up. It's fascinating stuff. I'd like to thank Moby for sitting down and being so open and honest with me in that interview. I want to thank Jordan Abel for stopping by to talk about his book, Nishka, which you can find right now in fine bookstores. Also, Tony Hiss, his book, Rescuing the Planet, is a must-read, and it's available wherever you buy fine books. Most of all, though, and as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.